This is a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord God, as we prepare to walk through this wonderful psalm penned by your servant David, and as we look forward to this Thanksgiving week, this Thanksgiving holiday, Lord, we do pray that you would speak to us through your word, that you would enable us to echo the words of David and to sing praises unto you regardless of what life has thrown at us, recognizing that we, your people, who have been redeemed through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, have more to be thankful for than we could ever imagine. And so we pray now, Lord God, that you would enable us to not be distracted by the cares and the anxieties of this world and of this life, that we would recognize that this time in this place is your time. We pray that you would speak to us through your word. In Christ's name, amen. So this, uh, this coming Thursday, obviously, as many of you know, is uh, the Thanksgiving holiday and uh, sort of kicks off the, the holiday season, and I just always think it's a great opportunity to, to take a break from whatever book or series we are going through and just take a moment, a Sunday, to uh, give thanks to God, particularly as we prepare to go into the season of... Uh, covetedness for many people. The holidays can be a difficult time for many people. Thanksgiving, the Christmas season can be a difficult time depending on what they have been through in the past. 
But even if you've not been through anything significant around the holiday season, for many Americans, just the last year or two have been a difficult time uh, in life for all of us. Here's what I mean by that. Did a little research. Currently, as of uh, last few, few days ago, at any rate, the inflation rate in the United States is 8.3%. That is the highest that it has been since 1981. The unemployment rate currently in the United States is 14.7%, which is the highest that it has been since 1933, which is right when the Great Depression started. As a nation founded upon Christian principles, we now have an openly gay U.S. Secretary of Transportation. We have a U.S. Assistant Secretary of Health who is a four-star admiral in the Navy, a licensed pediatrician, and is a transgendered male. Violent crime across the United States is on the rise in every category, and if you've been following the war in Ukraine, Vladimir Putin is threatening nuclear retaliation. And if that doesn't sound dark enough, recently the overturning of Roe v. Wade was seen as a victory, and it certainly was, but it was both good and bad. Bad in the sense that it returned the authority to oversee that to the states, which means that currently the state of California, as we speak, is debating a bill to allow infanticide up to 28 days after birth. So they have taken abortion to a whole new horrific level. And depending on what side of the aisle you're on, this last election was quite depressing. Now, we're to celebrate Thanksgiving this coming Thursday. And many of you are wondering why. You're thinking to yourself, I came to church to be encouraged. Well, good news is only good in light of the bad. And despite the last few years and all that we have been through and all that is happening in this nation, we have much to be thankful for. Minimally, we ought to be thankful because the Bible commands us everywhere to give thanks to God. For example, Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, Scripture says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 commands, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for your life, to be thankful in all circumstances. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And that is just a few of the many verses in the Bible that command God's people to give thanks to the Lord. 
This is where Psalm 30 is a wonderful psalm to reflect upon as we prepare for this Thanksgiving holiday. Let me give you the background to Psalm 30 so that we know the context of it and uh, why David may have written it and what is going on in the mind of David. Really, the background can be taken from the title itself, which uh, Brooke read, and I appreciate many people will tend to skip those and not view it as a part of verse 1, but it really is. Because the title, the big title that you see in your text, for example, if you're using the English Standard Version, you'll see that it says, joy comes with the morning. That's not actually God's word. That has been placed there by our um, modern editors to help us understand maybe the central theme of the passage. But where it says a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple, that is actually in the Hebrew text. That is God's word. That is a part of verse 1. And those titles are important because God put them there. And so that's the background. It is a song that was written by David at the dedication of the temple. Of course, that might be a little confusing for some because if you're familiar with your Old Testament stories, you know that David didn't build the temple, right? Remember that? He wanted to. We see that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He wants to build a temple for God. He has this great vision of doing that. He feels guilty over the fact that he lives in a palace that he's built for himself. He lives in a nice home with cedar walls. And the Ark of the Covenant is sitting in a tent, the tabernacle. God should have a palace, a temple to dwell in. Of course, he is told through Nathan the prophet that he will not build a temple for God because he's a man of blood, but rather his son will, Solomon, who will reign over a time of peace in Israel. And so David, of course, takes it upon himself then to get everything ready for the temple, brings together all of the supplies, and Solomon is going to build that temple. Nonetheless, we're left with the question, why does it say a song at the dedication of the temple? Well, the Hebrew word for temple is the Hebrew word beth, and it can and often does mean, and is translated in our English Bibles as a house or a dwelling place or a temple or the tabernacle or a, um, a palace, so to speak. So, for example, just as one of many of the examples I could cite, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2, there we're told that David was walking around on the roof of the palace when he looked over and he saw Bathsheba bathing, and many of you are familiar with that story. Well, the word there for palace is the same word that we find here for temple. It is the word bathe. So very likely, David wrote this psalm at the completion of the king's palace. He builds, he's, he's defeated all of the enemies of God's people. Peace is now reigning, or they're on the verge of defeating all of the enemies. They're at the end of it all. He's built a palace for himself, and he writes this song as a way of giving thanks to God after all that God has brought David through, all of the suffering that he's been through, all of the running from King Saul, he has arrived, so to speak. He builds this palace for himself, and he writes this psalm. And so the psalm divides nicely into four stanzas, and we'll look at each of those. 
But each of these stanzas is communicating a slightly different subpoint, but they are all conveying one central point that hopefully we will all see as we get toward the end. But to start with, the central point can actually be seen in the inclusio that exists in Psalm 30. And if you're not sure what an inclusio is, it is a literary device that was commonly used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament where there is a phrase or a word or an idea that is repeated both at the beginning and at the end of a psalm or a section of Scripture that really drives home the central point of that text. And so what we see at the beginning of verse 1, he says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. And then he really ends with the same idea at the end of verse 12, O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So he begins with, I will extol you, O Lord, and then he ends with, O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So the psalm is about giving thanks to God, about extolling God, worshiping God for all that he has done for us. So this is a great psalm for us to reflect upon this week. Some of you might consider reading it before your Thanksgiving meal. But with that, let's look at the first stanza, which is verses 1 to 3. And the central point of that first stanza is simply this, give thanks to the Lord for his deliverance. That's the point David is making in the first stanza. Give thanks to the Lord for his deliverance. He says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. It's interesting that the, uh, the words, you have drawn me up, is actually just one Hebrew word, and it is literally the word that is used most often for drawing water out of a well. So that's the idea that David has in mind. I was in a deep, dark hole And you, God, like drawing water out of a well, right? Does the water help in doing that at all? No. You stick the bucket down there and you pull the water up. And David says, you drew me out of this deep, dark pit that I was in. David undoubtedly is reflecting upon times in his life when he was in a deep, dark pit of despair, and there are many instances in the life of David where he found himself in difficult and discouraging situations, and God drew him out and did not allow his enemies to have victory over him. But not only does David worship God for deliverance from his enemies, but notice verse 2, O Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you healed me. So David seems to be reflecting on a time when God healed him of some infirmity or some injury, where David may be thinking of spiritual healing. We don't really know for sure what he has in mind. But then thirdly, David says in verse 3, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sheol in the Old Testament is simply the place of the dead. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, the 
Though the, the righteous and even prophets are said to die and go to Sheol. Job talks about how the wicked and the unrighteous die and go to Sheol. It's neither heaven nor hell. It is simply the place where the dead go. It is the place of death, so to speak. And David says, O Lord, you have brought, brought up my soul from Sheol. You have brought me back from the brink of death. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. We don't know exactly what David is reflecting upon as he writes this psalm. But we know that David went through some very difficult times in life. Some very dark times in life. Some of them were his fault. Some of him no fault of his own. But let me just recap for you the life of David. First of all, David starts out in his childhood as being such an insignificant child that his father nearly forgets about him. 1 Samuel chapter 16, Samuel is uh, sent to anoint the next king of Israel. He's told by God to go to Jesse, and there among one of his sons, he will find the next king of Israel. So Samuel says, bring out all of your sons, and there's eight of them. David is the youngest. So he brings out the first seven. Samuel looks at all of them and says, nope, none of these. I said, bring out all of your sons. Is this all you have? And Jesse has to pause for a moment and says, oh, wait, yeah, I, there is another one. That probably did not do much for David's self-esteem as a young man, that his dad would forget about him. And then when he finally grows up and he's anointed as the next king of Israel, it's not all pomp and ceremony, but instead he finds himself running for his life from King Saul, who wants to kill him. And he's living out in the desert, and he's hiding out in caves. He then finally rises to the throne of Israel and commits adultery with Bathsheba. And to make matters worse, he then conspires to have her husband killed. And to make matters even worse, the punishment that God says will come upon him is that he will suffer the death of his firstborn son. I've never experienced that, and I would never want to, but I have been told that losing Suffering the death of your child is one of the worst experiences that any parent can go through. David went through that. We're told that he wept and grieved bitterly. And then when his own sons, he has more children, and when his own sons are older, one of his sons rapes his own sister, and then his other son, in order to seek vengeance for that evil act, murders his brother. And then that son eventually tries to overtake the throne and to drive David from his throne. And David ends up hiding out in the wilderness from his own son who wants his own father dead. You talk about a highly dysfunctional family. This is dysfunctional at the highest level. Then David, in his old age, because of his arrogance and his pride, he wants to know how big his kingdom is. How many people do I rule over? So he tells his commanding officer to take a census of all of the people 
And even his commanding officer says, are you sure this is a good idea? You're the king. Okay, then. And so he does, and he arouses God's anger as though the kingdom belongs to David. And the result is that God brings a plague upon the people of Israel, and 70,000 Israelites die because of David's pride. That was on his head. He had to live with that. These people died because of you. It's no wonder David wrote some of the things that he wrote in various psalms, such as Psalm 13, for example. Listen to the words of David from Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David, obviously, is going through a very dark time in life. He's on the the edge of battling with depression, or maybe is actually there. Some of you might be able to empathize with what David writes in Psalm 13. How long must I take counsel in my own soul? How long must I have sorrow in my heart all the day long? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. David is in that place when he writes Psalm 13, where he doesn't even want to get out of bed in the morning. Don't pull open the shades. I don't even care. I'm just going to lay here until I die, because what's the point? David is struggling. We don't know why he is struggling. But nonetheless, what is amazing is that despite all that David has been through, he writes in Psalm 30, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. Maybe he wrote Psalm 30 after he wrote Psalm 13. We don't know. Oh, Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. Oh, Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. But you see, if you're a believer, you're a child of God, if you have placed faith in Christ as your only Savior and Lord, God has done this for you. God has delivered you from your greatest enemies and from your greatest foes, from the enemies of sin, death, and Satan. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is all about, right? 
God made him who knew no sin, referring to Christ, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us is that at the cross of Christ and by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit, there is a transaction that takes place. There is a trading of places. That is because of us, God treated Christ who is sinless as though he were sinful and poured his wrath on him. God made him who knew no sin to stand in our place and to be sin for us so that we might become, so that through faith in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, who brings us into union with Christ, so that we might be treated, even though we are sinful and wicked in and of ourselves, because of what Christ has done for us, we might be treated as though we are righteous. Jesus takes our place. And he is treated as we should have been treated so that we can be treated in the way that Christ should have been treated. God has also brought healing to your soul through the death of his son. Just as David talks about in Psalm 30. Oh, Lord God, I cried out for help, and you have healed me. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5 says, Surely he has borne our griefs, talking about the Messiah, and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Listen, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, we are healed. Our broken and damaged soul has been healed through the blood of Christ. And he has drawn us up and restored us to life, as David talks about. Oh, Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, Scripture says this, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved by faith, been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because of what Christ has done for us, we have been restored to life, true life, everlasting life. We have much to be thankful for, to extol the Lord our God The second stanza, which is verses 4 and 5, simply says this, Give thanks to the Lord for his mercy and his faithfulness. 
Sing praises to the Lord. O you, his saints, and give thanks to him, his holy, give thanks to his holy name. Why? Here's why. Verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. If you're a believer, you can honestly say that God's anger toward you was for a moment. And his love and his grace and his mercy and his favor toward you is forever. Even when we are disciplined by God, which we are at times, according to Hebrews chapter 12, we are his children. And when we grieve the heart of God by our sins, God does discipline us. But even there, the author of Hebrews is quick to remind us in verses 9 to 11. He says, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, for a moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In other words, if you are a child of God, if you have saving faith in Christ, there may be times in your life when God will be temporarily displeased with you. And he may even discipline you. But know that it does not mean that God loves you any less. God's love for his children can never be diminished. I find that comforting. This is the joy that we get when we understand passages like 2 Corinthians 5, 21, which I just cited but also passages like 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we come to God, no matter how often we sin, if we are a child of God and we are truly trusting in Christ alone for our salvation, every time we come to God the Father seeking forgiveness, He is faithful to all of his promises that he will be merciful and he is just to forgive us of all our sins. You see, because if Christ Jesus has died on the cross for all of your sins that you will ever commit, past, present, and future, then when a child of God comes to the Father seeking forgiveness, God's justice demands that he must forgive you. Because your sins have been paid for. Or we find great joy in passages like Galatians chapter 3, which we just read this morning. I'll just read two verses. Verses 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that, here's why he did it, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham 
that Abraham was received into fellowship with God, that God entered into an eternal covenant relationship with Abraham, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Christ became a curse for us so that we might receive the same blessed status of Abraham. But in the end, look at how David finishes that stanza. The end of verse 5, he says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Despite everything that David had been through in life, all of the hardships, all of the grief, David is able to worship and praise God and to start this psalm by saying, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. He ends by saying, O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Why is that? Because David understands that no matter what the believer goes through in life, there is always a light at the end of the tunnel. And every day that we live, that light gets brighter and brighter and brighter. Because someday we will be done with this life. And we will enter into eternity of bliss and joy and happiness like we have never experienced or imagined before. Weeping tarries for the night but it won't last forever. Joy comes with the morning. The third stanza is verses 6 to 10. And in this stanza, the psalm takes a slightly different turn in that David reflects upon a time when he acted foolishly, and yet despite his pride and arrogance and foolishness, amazingly, God remained faithful to him, which is yet another reason that David finds to praise and be thankful to God. Notice verse 6, he says, as for me, I said, past tense, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. So David is reflecting upon a time in his life when things were going well, and he was trusting in that prosperity. He allowed it to go to his head. This may be the time when he entered into an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. He's walking along the roof of the palace. Look at how great I am. I've conquered all of the enemies of God's people. I am the king of Israel. And it went to his head, and he made a fool of himself. Yet despite his sinful arrogance, notice what he says in verse 7. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. Despite the fact that David was trusting in his prosperity and acting arrogantly, he recognizes and acknowledging that at the end of the day, I understand that it was God who allowed me to stand. It was God who allowed me to have victory over my enemies. It was God who made me strong. At the same time, David remembers, and he acknowledges that he had displeased God. You hid your face, and I was dismayed. 
He recognizes that. Sinned against God. So what does David do about it? Verse 8. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. During those times when he acted foolishly and he trusted in his own prosperity, David turns to God. It's a great lesson for all of us there. But why does he do that? Look at verses 9 and 10. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. In other words, David recognizes, God, I am praying this and I'm reaching out to you because if my enemies gain victory over me, if I go into this dark pit of despair from which I never return, how will you be glorified in that? Will the dust praise you? Will the dirt praise you? In other words, the basis of David's prayer for deliverance is this. He prays, Lord, don't deliver me for my sake, but deliver me for your sake. Deliver me for your glory. You know, this is why, despite all of David's sins, all of his character flaws. And when you really study the life of David, you come to realize that David was a really messed up person. Yet despite all of that, David is the only one referred to as a man after God's own heart. How is that possible? Because the one thing David did right that God saw in him is that at his very core, His deepest, greatest desire was to glorify God. David's greatest desire was to truly please God. He just wasn't very good at it. But when he sinned, it grieved him. Read Psalm 51. He was grieved the sins that he had committed against God. But you see that phrase a lot in the Psalms of David, where he prays to God and he says, for your sake, deliver me. For your name's sake, answer my prayer, because he wants God to be glorified. And he meant it, and God saw that. And so David is called a man after God's own heart. You see, this is oftentimes our struggle. Because when we pray, oftentimes we don't pray that God would be glorified, but we pray for ourselves. We read, for example, in James chapter 4, verses 2 to 3, James writes this, you covet and cannot obtain, you fight and quarrel, you do not have because you do not ask. You're simply not praying, and that's why you don't have it. But then he says in verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, James says, you have two problems. Number one, you simply don't go to God in prayer, and even when you do go to God in prayer, you go to God with the wrong motives. 
Your prayers aren't driven by a desire for God to be glorified. Your prayers are driven by a desire for me to be happy. Lord, I don't like where I am. Please change this. Make me happy, God. And so James says, that's why your prayers aren't going to be answered. You see, David was the opposite. David always cried out to God and said, don't do this for me. Do this for yourself. If the struggle that I am in is bringing you glory, then God, leave me here. But if bringing me out of this will bring you glory, then deliver me, I pray, from my enemies. Thus, the point of the stanza, this third stanza, is that when we go through difficult times in life, we must cry out to God for the right reasons and then rejoice and give thanks knowing that God always hears the prayers of his people. Stanza 4 is verses 11 and 12, which is simply this. Give thanks and praise to God in light of all that he has done for us, in light of all that he has done for us and to us. In verse 11, he says, you have turned, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. You know, it's quite amazing to read in light of all that David went through, all of the horrific events that I just described for you that David went through. It's amazing to read what David writes here, that you have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. How is he able to say that despite trying to be killed by Saul, despite his firstborn child dying, despite one son raping his daughter, and then the other son murdering that son, and then that son wanting to kill his own father, and David, had, after all that he's been through. How does David write this? Notice what he says in verse 12. Notice the reason, that. That, here's why, that my glory may sing your praise and not be Silent. What does he mean by my glory will sing your praise? David understands that people are going to look to David. They're going to study the life of David as we study the life of David, right? And oftentimes when people talk about David, don't they talk about how great David was, right? We forget all of the dirty details that I just reminded you of. Wow, David was really messed up. David says, at the end of the day, when people look to my life, Rather than give me credit, they're going to recognize that David became who he was, the great king of Israel, because of what God did for him and through him. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. You see, when life is good and all is well, no one ever thinks to praise God. No one ever even thinks about God. But God brings us through the sufferings of this world so that on the other side of it, 
we have reason to praise and glorify God. Thus, David is actually thanking and praising God, not just for the good times. And David is not simply thanking God for bringing him through the sufferings in his life. David is thanking God for the suffering in his life. Because he understands that it is in that suffering that David would turn to God. It is in that suffering that God would, is the greatest glorified. God uses the suffering in David's life to bring himself great glory and honor and praise. So this thanksgiving, let us not just thank God for the good things in our life. Let's not just thank God for the blessings in our life and for bringing us through the tough times in our life. But like David, we should thank God for the suffering in our life. How's that for a twist on Thanksgiving? Because it is in those moments of suffering that our faith is increased, that we see the beauty and the glory and the faithfulness, and the mercy of God. This Thanksgiving, we should reflect on all that God has done in our lives so that we can sing with David at the end of verse 12, O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Because ultimately, everything God does in the believer's life. Everything God sovereignly brings into the believer's life, whether good or suffering, is good. Is it not? Amen? Because God is good. And everything that God puts you through is ultimately for your good and for God's glory. David understood that truth like no one else in the Bible, I'm convinced. And that's what always gave him great joy and reason to praise and worship and thank God. And we should do the same. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, not only for the good in our life, not only for bringing us through the bad times in life, but Father, we thank you for the suffering in life, because it is only when we are in the deep pits that David describes that we experience your amazing faithfulness and goodness and grace as you sovereignly pull us out of those pits. Our faith is strengthened. Our love for Christ is deepened. And so we thank you for all of it, Lord God. We thank you for everything that you do in our life, which we know is for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.